Well, welcome to you all here today. Um, I just thought I'd make a little observation first. Uh, the line of one of those songs said, we are, we are singing for the glory of the risen king. There's no other people group in the world that has a reason to sing, because they have no one to sing to. But we have a risen savior in the heavens, and that is why billions of Christians throughout history have sung, because there is someone who is risen to sing to. Um, if you could open your Bibles with me to First Peter, the first chapter, and we are reading from verse 3 to verse 5. That's First Peter, first chapter, verse 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the reading so far of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May God impress it eternally upon our hearts. Let us pray. Father, we bless your name, and we thank you for the gift of being able to gather here today. We thank you for the wonderful news of the gospel, that you sent your son to save sinners, and that you were sent that you would be the firstborn of many sons, and so that by your obedience, your death and resurrection on a cross, uh, we can be adopted into the household of God. I pray that you would use your word powerfully today to bring life, to bring joy, and to bring hope. Do this, Lord, for the glory and the honor of your name. Ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I was saying to Ellen earlier that the early church would greet each other by saying, Christ has risen. And somewhere along the lines, that got exchanged for Christians now greet each other by saying, how's it? Uh, but uh, the, the, the reason that they would greet each other and say, Christ is risen, is because this is of first importance, that Christ Jesus was sent to die for your sins and was raised from the dead. And they were there just after this event had happened. It was news that literally shook the world. And so the first thing on anyone's mind when they were with someone else was to remind each other, Christ is risen. They were full of hope. And so today, that is what we are going to be speaking about. So I greet you today in the name which is above all other names, the name of the risen one, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful privilege uh, to be here today and uh, for us to gather uh, because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. To any guests here today, a very, very, very warm welcome to you. And I hope that you'll enjoy your time with us and that you'll stay briefly for some uh, tea and some fellowship afterwards and then that you'll have a blessed day. Uh, this Easter with your families. So tombs are normally famous for who they contain. But there is one tomb which is famous because of who it does not contain. This tomb is the tomb in which the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, who had just been crucified, was laid. And three days later, the ground shook, and the, and the stone was rolled away, and Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I've titled this sermon, Our Hope. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. To me, this text today is one of the greatest portions of Scripture in the New Testament. It is full of the power of God. It is full of the promises of God. And it's 
got great truths about eternity. Humans are built for hope. It's a desire that's unavoidable. And uh, it's not just religious people. It's all people. If you don't believe me, just reflect on the culture for a moment. How many of our blockbuster movies are about the hero who saves the day? How many books have been written about uh, neuroscience and how hope makes teams effective and how hope actually lengthens people's lives? This is a medically accepted fact. How many magazines have sold uh, because they contain articles that say how to get from here to there? How many people buy books that say your best life now? They promise a light at the end of the tunnel. How many drugs are bought because they promise an escape from this life or an entrance into joy? But we are all looking for hope, whether it is uh, heroes, books, science, philosophy, relationships, careers, children, drugs, alcohol, money, status, sex, any other number of pursuits. But the question is, what is the type of hope that we need and where do we get it? So as we consider the gospel today, um, my prayer is that you who are Christians will, will not only grow in your understanding of what Christ has done, but experience this living hope which Peter is talking about. And for those of you who are not Christians, that you too would come to hear clearly of this word from God and know that how you may have this hope as well. So if we can just begin with uh, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an exclamation of praise because the first thing Peter wants to do when thinking about what God has done is to say, blessed be you, God. It's also interesting because in the Old Testament, God was almost never called Father. He was mostly called Redeemer, Savior, Yahweh. But in the New Testament... Jesus always addressed God as Father, except once. When he was on the cross and he cried out, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, he was cut off so that you could be begotten. He was cut off from God so that you could be reconciled to God. Because of Jesus, we may have a truly intimate, a truly personal relationship with God, the sovereign creator of the universe. What a marvelous truth. The latter part of of, uh, verse, verse 3 continues this way. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's a lot in there, so we're going to just break this down little part by little part. So first, according to his great mercy, Paul is explaining here that God's glorious, glorious saving actions are motivated by his mercy. It's in his desire to show mercy that God did what he did. And we'll consider later why we needed, why we needed this mercy in the first place, our helpless and sinful state. But at this point, we simply are considering God's nature, that he is merciful, And that his desire to show mercy is motivated by his nature. That he would reach out in Christ and reconcile uh, man to God. Then he has caused us to be born again. The the Greek phrase here, born again, is 
anagenesis, which means literally having been begotten again, literally being brought forth again, being rebirthed. And so we need to take note of two things here. The first is that this birth is not our own doing, and this, it, is, it is the action of God. And secondly, it's that the second birth is necessary for salvation. If you are finding this discussion familiar, it's probably because you are remembering John 3, 1 to 8, which is Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, who is he's a supreme master of teaching the law. He's a Pharisee. He is one of the... He is, a grand master of teaching in Israel, one of the most highly respected uh, scholars. And so uh, let's, let's just read this interaction briefly. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus, in typical fashion, didn't answer that question and just, just said, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I have said to you, you must be born again. So contrary to a popular view of this passage, Nicodemus has not misunderstood what Jesus has said. He is a master of teaching using idiom and, um, and turns of phrase and uh, analogy. He is saying, this is impossible. He's not saying, how is it possible? He's saying, this is not possible. Uh, Jesus said to him, Nicodemus, this new birth is the work of the Spirit. You cannot predict where it comes from or where it is going. That's why he said, it is like the wind. You don't know where it's coming from and where it's going. That's not talking about Christians. That's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. And the point is, it's divine prerogative. It's the same thing in John 1, 12 to 3. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's not man's power. It's not man's will. It's God's will, and it's God's power. And then the disciples asked Jesus a similar question, Matthew 19, 25. And they said, who can be saved? And Jesus replied to the disciples in verse 26, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And what God does in this new birth is truly, truly wonderful. It's Ezekiel 20, 26, 36, where God promises, he says, I will take out your heart of stone and I will put in you a new spirit, a heart of flesh. This is the miracle of regeneration, that God gives us a new heart. And that's essentially what Jesus was telling Nicodemus. You will not see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And so what a great mercy it is when God causes us to be born again. We become a child of God. We become a co-heir with Christ, and therefore we will inherit all things that God has promised for his own. And what is this new birth to? Next part of the verse is it's to a living hope. This living hope is that we can have eternal life. And this hope is not wishful thinking. 
humans talk about hope as a, like a, a desire for something to happen. Like they wish it was true. And it's like this tenuous feeling like if only this could happen, this might happen. Therefore, I can somehow cope with today. I can cope with my day-to-day because there's a possibility that I might win the lotto or a possibility that my parents will forgive me or there's a possibility that I can be reconciled within a broken relationship. But that's not, that's not a biblical hope. Uh, biblical hope is a confident expectation based on facts and the objective promises of God. It's a present reality because we know what is true, what is going to happen. It's based on the guaranteed future event, not the possibility of it. In verse 23 of the chapter of our text, Peter says, you, are not, you, have, not been, sorry, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. This is a rebirth to life and to hope that never perishes. And I'd just like to point out a few things that Scripture says elsewhere about hope. There's a lot, enough to fill decades of preachers, but I just want to list ten brief biblical illuminations about hope. Hope comes from God. That's Psalm 43, verse 5. Hope is a gift of God's grace. That's 2 Thessalonians 2.16. Hope is given to us via the encouragement of Scripture. That's Romans 15.4. Hope is based on a reasonable and true foundation and therefore can be explained to others. That's 1 Peter 3.15. Hope is secured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's John 11.25-26. Hope is attested to by the Holy Spirit. That's Romans 15.13. Hope defends against the attacks of the devil. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.8. Hope is confirmed through trials. That's Romans 5, 3 to 4. Hope produces joy. That's Psalm 146, verse 5. And hope is fulfilled in Christ's return. That's Titus 2, 13. If you are not a Christian, if you have not been born again, do you have hope? Yes. Yes. Yes, most likely you do. But that hope is dying. It's fading. It's temporary. It's perishable. It's a deception. It's non-saving. It's an illusion. It's a blasphemy. See, the feeling that you are happy, that you are satisfied, that you are wealthy, that you're successful, that the dreams, the desires, the confidence, the charisma, the aspirations, believing that I can be whatever I want to be if I just will it into existence with my positive thinking. Listen, you can trick yourself into positive thinking, but it's wishful thinking. See, on the day of Christ's return, your hopes will melt like a little wax figurine placed in a blast furnace. Gone. Everything that you have built up throughout your whole life in an instant, in the face of the ineffable glory of Jesus Christ at his return. But when you are born again into the household of God, into his people, you are born to a living hope, a hope that never dies. See, everyone on the face of this planet will disappoint you. Everything that you want, everything you dream about will disappoint you. But God will never disappoint because God is God and he fulfills his promises. 
there will be a day when this hope that Christians have is shown to be true, when Jesus returns and all the promises are fulfilled, and they will receive every single thing throughout the whole of this book that God has committed to give to his people. What a day that will be. He will come and he will fulfill each of our deepest longings, our greatest desires, in an instant, satisfied. And not just will they be satisfied as we will enjoy the moment where that satisfaction comes, but we will stay in that state for eternity. He's going to come in, with, in, the, in the perfection, in the beauty of his presence, his joy and his peace of him being near us forever. And how is this accomplished? Well, it's accomplished through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But to understand this statement fully, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we need to ask three questions, I think. Firstly, why was Jesus dead? Secondly, why was Jesus raised from the dead? And thirdly, how is his resurrection life applied to us? So let's begin with why Jesus was dead. In Genesis 3, the sin of Adam brought about the collapse of human holiness. From a state of perfection to a state of sinfulness. And in this one man, all of mankind fell. Having once enjoyed a perfect communion with God, man was cut off. But not only man in Adam, but each one of us is a guilty party to this treason against God. And how do we know, though, that we are guilty of this treason? Well, I can tell you that it's not just that the Bible tells us so, even though that's true. Romans 3.23 testifies to this. It says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But in addition to this, your own conscience testifies to this fact. It's when it goes quiet. It's when you're by yourself and your mind goes to the terrible things that you've done. and And the sense of guilt and shame and condemnation comes upon you. That is your conscience testifying to you that you have violated the law of God which is written on your hearts. Everybody can claim that, oh, I don't know that this thing is actually wrong, but you do. And your conscience testifies to it. In fact, this is a gift from God that your conscience terrorizes you for your sin. This I know is true of my life. I was terrorized by my conscience testifying to me of my sinfulness and my need for a perfect savior. But we rebel against this knowledge. We rebel. Romans 1, 18 to 25 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their righteousness suppress the truth. To suppress something, you have to have it. And it says that man, mankind, it's a collective. We all know, but we suppress it. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. That means when you step outside and you go, wow, look at those stars, and then you go, what a coincidence. You, you know, but you suppress. So they are without excuse, God says here. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
What does it mean for your foolish hearts to be darkened? It means for you to look at what God has created and then not worship him for it. To say there is no God. That's why it says in uh, Proverbs, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So what's the implication here? Well, it's a pretty scary one. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. That's Romans 6.23. And in the Old Testament, this is expressed the same way. The soul that sins shall die. Ezekiel 18.20. And so each of us is born headed to destruction by choosing sin over loving God. But God, desiring to show his mercy, made a way for sinners to be saved from God's wrath against their sin. To be saved from the wages of sin, which is death. And the way that he did this was to send his son, a perfect man, who obeyed God's law perfectly and lived the life that we could not. See, he had no fault of his own. He had not sinned. He was sinless. He was perfect. And when he was brought before Pontius Pilate and he said, I can find nothing wrong with this man. It's because there was nothing wrong with this man. He had not committed any sin. But judicially, God took the sin that you and I had committed, the sin that each person who will come to to trust the Lord as their Savior, he took that sin and he put it on their shoulders. He heaped our guilt onto him. And then he was crucified. The very foundation of the universe was lifted up and put on a tree. And while as he died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Because the penalty for our sin was paid by a perfect substitute. This was prophesied and pictured in all the feasts in the Old Testament. The spotless lamb. The lamb had to be spotless to symbolize Christ who would have no sin. And he was pegged, pierced up to a tree for our transgressions. That God punished his, all of our sin completely in him. But he was without fault. Yet he died on our behalf. And you see, none of you could have been crucified... I could not have been crucified. No human could be crucified and satisfy God's uh, wrath against sin. Why? Because all of us are broken and sinful. We have nothing to offer God. We are only the beneficiaries of God's mercy. And so this, comp- this penalty was paid in full. And the way I want you to think about it is, is like this. You're, we were all we are all criminals. Let's picture that, being criminals. You're, and in an instant, your record is expunged. Not, it's not sealed. It's, it's deleted from the records. It's gone. Your sin is blotted out. Your transgressions are wiped away. Your, your guilt is removed. All your debts are canceled. It's like you're owing SARS 4 million rand. And you get this letter. The entire debt is canceled. It has been paid by a friend of yours. And this is the good news, that the friend to mankind, Jesus Christ, has paid for sin. This is wonderful news. But why then was Jesus raised from the dead as well? Was Christ's death alone not sufficient for salvation? No. Because our sin needed to be paid for and the curse of death needed to be defeated. And so to complete the salvation, Christ needed to be raised from the dead. In fact, we have, in this, we have proof of God accepting this perfect sacrifice. 
And that's why in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, Paul states, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. His death and his resurrection are both, are both required for salvation. His, his death was because of his union with us and uh, his identification with our sinful nature. As R.C. Sproul puts it wonderfully, and listen to this very carefully, in us, he is guilty. In him, we are innocent. What a great exchange. He took upon our guilt so that we could take upon his innocence. And so, because he is risen from the dead, so we too may be raised from the dead unto an eternal life. This resurrection is, it is central to our understanding of salvation. It's not simply that Jesus died, but that he was rose, risen from the dead. Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Uh, then those who also who have died in Christ have perished. If in Christ our only hope is in this life, we of all people are most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For as, a, as by one man came death, by one man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Amen. Wonderful. See, because he endured the penalty for sin and was raised from the dead, the effect of that is he was victorious over hell. He was victorious over death, victorious over sin, victorious over the powers of evil. And so if he had not been raised, Christianity is just meaningless. But if it's true, then we can have hope. We can have forgiveness of sin. We can have life. Have you noticed, though, that the gospel doesn't say to me, Listen, if you've got a couple of minutes, can I prove to you that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead? No, it is presupposed. Since Christ is risen from the dead, you must therefore repent of your sin and you must believe in him. We're not, we are called to respond to the gospel, not to investigate it. We need to understand that God is not on trial. Man is. He is the supreme and perfect judge of all the universe. We are in the box. Not God. So when we, when we approach God with that, well, if you prove X, Y, and Z to me, I'll believe. Well, Romans 1 says that he has already proven who he is. And, you, and, you, and we all, all of us, have buried that in our hearts. And it remains there until we die or until God brings the new birth. And because of who he is, Christ may then claim, as he did in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Since he is risen from the dead, since he is the one who is victorious over death, since he is God, he has the right to claim this. No mere man can claim this. And lastly, 
How is this resurrection life applied to us? This question is also definitional to the gospel. This answer uh, to this question determines whether what you believe is the truth or a false gospel. See, there are only two religions in the world. There are several thousand recognized religions, uh, but we can use the truth to determine that there are only two. The religion of human accomplishment and the religion of divine accomplishment. This cruel, false religion of human accomplishment is where our righteousness, our right standing with God, can supposedly come from our work and our deeds. This includes Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, New Age religions, paganism, mysticism, Buddhism, Roman Catholicism, and even atheism. Then there is the one true religion of divine accomplishment, which is the Christian gospel, which states that we cannot become righteous before God by our own deeds. Instead, God imputes the very holiness of his perfect son, Jesus Christ, to your account, regardless of what you had done in your life. And by his living a perfect life, by dying in your place and being resurrected from the dead, he absorbed the penalty for your sin. So your bad works were counted to him and his perfect works are counted to you. This is something that God sovereignly accomplishes. It is not something which man can do. And this righteousness comes to us how? By faith. But more importantly, by faith alone. Not by faith and works. True faith is accompanied by good works. But the works cannot bring uh, salvation. The reason being is for a sinful man to say God must accept what I have done, is a, is a, that is a terrible wickedness. It is great, a greater wickedness than the wickedness that put you in that situation. We need to receive what God has done for us by faith. It's Christ's work alone that we trust in by faith alone, which comes to us by God's grace alone. Now, in Roman Catholicism, the doctrine is the infusion of righteousness, that literal righteousness is infused into you in baptism. That is as far as can be the truth from the biblical concept. The biblical teaching is that you have been born again and Christ's righteousness is counted to you. God sees you as righteous because he declares you righteous based on what Jesus Christ has done. Not because he looks upon you and says, the person himself is perfect. But he says, Jesus Christ is perfect. I have put his work upon this man. I see his blood. And so this person in my eyes is counted perfect to me. It's a gift that is free because it comes from God. And it's a gift that is without revocation because it comes from God. It is not something I have bargained with God for. It is not something I've said, look, I've done these great works. You now owe me salvation. You now owe me an inheritance, Father. It is grace because God accomplished it. Otherwise, as Paul says, grace would not be grace. It is the gracious gift of a loving God, and it's available, listen carefully, to everyone who repents and believes in Christ for his righteousness. False religion, all the ones that are named there, plus the other several thousands, they, try, they, either, they either deny sin or they try and beat the sin out of you with some kind of 
like like a sledgehammer of keeping the law. Like, if you do this, out goes the sin. And each of us has tried this. All of you know this, whether you're a Christian or not. You've tried to be good, and you always fail. You have little accomplishment here, but everything that you here and there, but everything that you've done has been motivated by uh, uh, you. But uh, a Christian does good works because of what God has done to their heart. It's now a desire to please God. And so if you try to beat the sin out of yourself, you are just going to beat yourself to death. Literally. But Christianity proclaims that the sin of those who repent uh, was crucified with Christ. And the righteousness of Christ is substituted for your unrighteousness. It's a free offer of mercy. And Isaiah 51 says this, Everyone who thirsts, we are thirsty, come to the waters and you have no money. Come buy and eat without money and without cost. The reason it can be without cost for you is because it cost Jesus his life. Because of the price that he paid, you may freely, unconditionally have eternal life. Consider Jesus' words to the woman at the well in John eleven twenty five. He says to her, he lets it slip. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So the way in which salvation is applied to us is by trusting in the work of Jesus Christ. When we truly repent of our sin and we truly trust in Jesus Christ alone, his saving and complete work is applied to us eternally. It is very, very simple. Repent and believe. Romans 6, 5 gives us the most wonderful promise. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We have a new identity. Our identity is that we are united with Christ. And our new identity is that we, were once, we who once were strangers and aliens have been adopted into the household of God. Is this not truly the greatest news this Resurrection Sunday? Yes, it is. Amen. And continuing to verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. As mentioned earlier, we... We have an inheritance because we are God's children. And we, we have an inheritance as a result of the new birth. As Ephesians 2.19 says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Christians are heirs of God and co-heirs of all things with Christ. That's Romans 8.16. And uh, our, verse 5 of our text today and Hebrews 1.14 says that this inheritance uh, is, is often called salvation. We are told this wonderful news about the, the nature of inheritance as well, that it's imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. The Greek word for imperishable is apthaton, which was a military term used in secular Greek. And it just meant that something could not be ravished by an invading army. It was the thing that was protected. It is safe. It will never be destroyed. It doesn't expire. And undefiled means it's not polluted. It's pure. It's not subject 
to the effects of the fall. It's not stained by evil. It's uncorrupted. And unfading means that it isn't eternal. It does not decay. And this is the really great thing because all earthly things, all earthly inheritances, they're ultimately going to fade away, aren't they? We see this in 1 John 2.17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And we see in Matthew 6.19-21, to Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Wow. And it gets even better than this. Not only is this inheritance being kept for us, um, it, is, it is guaranteed to us now in the present time. How? Well, Ephesians 1, 13 to 14 tells us that in him you also, when you heard the word of truth and believed uh, the gospel of your salvation, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Now, the Greek word here for guarantee is arabon, which literally means to be given as a pledge, a deposit. So that's why we say that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is God's proof of of the promise that is to be fulfilled in the future. What does this mean for us then? Well, it means that it doesn't really matter what you build up in this life. See, you came into the world with nothing. And you will leave it with nothing. The only thing that matters is what is waiting for you when you get there. Mm. I don't know if you've noticed this. Who of you have bought new cars and then two years later it looks outdated? Um, How many of you have um, started off in uh, marriage and um, something just... Just everything's so uh, fresh and exciting, and then something something dulls. Hope means that restoration is going to be bought, and it can only be applied to that which has eternal value. So, a marriage which is dedicated to the Lord is something which can be made beautiful and something that will reap um, eternal uh, meaning. Uh, but a, a car is not. A, ho- a house is not. A career is not. I mean, we can do all these things to glorify God and to enjoy them ourselves, to bring family to, to our, uh, and uh, provision to our families. But on that day, when Jesus returns, what is it that you will be uh, celebrating? Those things will just melt away. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Finally, verse 5. It says that we who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So what is this last time? It's Christ's return. It's the full and the final manifestation of his glory. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Jesus has uh, risen and ascended into heaven and he will return to consummate the kingdom. And he will be back to gather his own. We do not know when this will be. 
And do not trust a single person who thinks they do. But we are clearly instructed in the Bible to wait and to pray for his return and to be ready because he will come like a thief in the night. So the question you must ask yourself today is, am I ready? Is it a terrible thought for you? Because if Jesus Christ appeared right now in the middle of the sermon, would you be dead in your trespasses and sins and condemned to an eternity in hell? Or would this be the greatest, this, would this be the fulfillment of your hope? That Jesus Christ has come again to gather you. It says that he will gather in the wheat and burn the chaff. Will you be gathered in or burnt? Or is the, is the, is the return of Christ your, your great desire? Because he's going to fulfill each one of those desires that sits deeply in your heart. Each one of those promises that he made to you in scripture. And, and what will happen in this last time for his people? Well, what, are the, what are the promises of this final salvation? Well, as Christians, we've already experienced the past element of salvation in that we were freed from the penalty of sin. Christ died for us. And we are experiencing the present element of salvation. We are being renewed. That the Holy Spirit is working in us to make us more like Christ. We, are, we were freed from the uh, penalty of sin. We are being freed from the power of sin in our lives, and we will be freed from the presence of sin when he returns. You see, I think the great picture comes to us in Revelations 2, uh, 21 verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And Revelation 2.25, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the, of the light of a lamp, nor of the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. But we need a, a sun, we need a lamp, because there was darkness. And darkness will be done away with. But my greatest hope it's 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall be as he is. We will be free from sickness, pain, decay, grief, guilt, suffering, depression, sadness, disabilities, Disappointments, persecutions, anxiety, tears, failure, pain, weakness, confusion, and brokenness. But the greatest of all things is that we will be free from the presence of sin. It means complete and final deliverance from the sin. I'll be able to look upon my God and not hide my face in shame. Esty was telling me the other day that this is the thing she cannot wait for. It's the Christian's great desire to see God and to be purified in his presence. What a day that is going to be. What a day. I'll be able to gaze upon my Savior with unveiled faces, not covered by the veil of sin. And the most wonderful part about this is, is God guarantees that all of his children will get there. Why? Because God's power is, is guarding us for that salvation by faith. There are those who believe that, 
It's by your will that you got into the kingdom. If that's true, by, by, you, will, you will leave it. The reason that people come into the kingdom is because God brings them there. And the reason they have hope is because God will keep them there. I have hope because I would let myself down. I would leave the faith. But God is guarding me for the salvation. We exercise faith, but we are given faith as a gift. The emphasis is on God's work of election and of regeneration. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. You see, it's ultimately His working in us that brings about our confidence, our assurance, our security. And it comes from God's power, not ours. He began, He is continuing, and He will complete the work of salvation. That's why Philippians 1 verse 6 says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. And Jude 1.24 says, him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Saving faith is permanent because it is God's work. So why are we talking about all of this today? Because The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is what opened heaven to us. All of its treasures, each of its glories, opened to us by Jesus Christ. And in addition, that death was defeated and will be finally swallowed up in the great joy of his presence at his return. And how then are we to respond? Well... Christians, we respond with thanksgiving for the wonder of his salvation. To abound in hope at what God has promised for our future. And to pray for all of those who do not yet share in this great inheritance. You see, if you look just a few verses down from our text today at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible And filled with glory. That's why he began with. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have a joy that is inexpressible. And full of glory. This is the great news to those of you who are believing. For those of you who are not Christians. Listen if Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead. Then Christianity is stupid and meaningless. You should disregard everything I said. You should have walked out halfway through this thing. Because there would be no life, there would be no salvation, there'd be no joy, there'd be no hope, there'd be no peace, there'd be no reconciliation with God. And you should turn away, never to return to this nonsense. But Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And so I uh, say to you today, hear from the words of Jesus himself in John 14, 19. Because I live, you will live also. Christ's resurrection from the dead is not merely a historical fact, and it's not merely the central doctrine of the Christian faith, but it is God's personal invitation to you for eternal life. It is not just a corporate offer. It is an offer that is made individually to persons, available to all who come to repentance. Through repentance and faith, it's simple, repent of your sin, and believe in what Christ has done, you too can have a living hope. 
And you too can be adopted into the family of God. You too can know the good news that Christ is dead, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. This is the news of Easter. This is the news of the gospel. And it certainly is good news. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for sending your son that we may have eternal life. Lord, would you open our hearts to receive the truth of your offer of salvation and this living hope. And will you comfort your children today with this hope in which they stand. And now as we go about our time with our families today, I pray, Lord, that you'd be glorified as we celebrate the great wonder of your son's resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit.